Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Kim Dole, and I'm staff attorney as, as Kelly uh, for Regional Housing Legal Services. Kelly, Kelly already introduced us, so I'm just going to briefly kick it off and then hand it over to Dina. Um, and then I'll, then, she'll, then I'll come back to me, and then we'll end with, with Mark. Um, so I just wanted to sort of give you an overview oops, of uh, so, so the purpose of this webinar is really to provide a uh, a background uh, and you know some some pretty detailed information about the low income housing tax credit program or as we call it LIHTC or L I H T C usually LIHTC um, and and the purpose of this is to to help you be a better advocate for for your clients who may be living in in LIHTC housing or maybe looking for LIHTC housing and and also to let you know generally what you know if, if to the extent you're not aware who regional housing legal services is what we do who, who we are and and how we can be a resource for you in uh your advocacy on behalf of low-income clients so um so that that's that's sort of the uh the general purpose of, of this webinar um and you know we've done this several times uh, mark and, and dina and mark i think mark has has taken this roadshow um to, to many locations so um so, so that's anyways. why he went looking for cookies. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> he always gets cookies when he takes it on the road, right? I can, can I, I can close that, right? So, all right. Um, anyway, so yeah, and yeah, my technical abilities here. Um, I think you're you're seeing that people are entering the waiting room. I don't know how to get rid of that. So. Um, well, it'll keep going until people until everybody. Right. Okay. Going. All right. So maybe there's a way to get rid of it, but. At least it's not so, pinging like it usually does, where it goes ping, 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 ping. So regional housing legal services. For those of you who don't know, we're a, a you know, a nonprofit law firm or a specialty program of, of plan, and we are we're statewide, and we do essentially uh, commercial real and residential real estate development. So um, and uh, and a lot of that is is financed by the low income housing tax credit program. We do other stuff. We do advocacy. We you know, our, we do community and economic development and we support nonprofits that, that do that kind of work. So we actually represent the nonprofit developers. Um, and, uh, and, and, and a lot of that is, as I said, driven by um, or using the low income housing tax credit program, since that's the, the main driver of, uh, of uh, affordable housing development um, in this country. So, um, so generally, this this webinar is going to go over these basics, which is that um, LIHTC is a federal tax credit, and um, and it's basically it's a program of the IRS, not HUD. So uh, in that in that way, it's a little bit unusual, and because of that, it's the noncompliance with the with LIHTC and the consequences for developers that don't comply are um, different from other housing programs, um, and the consequences for tenants that don't comply are also different. Um, so we, so the reason we, we give this uh, webinar is because we think that you as a tenant advocate can really benefit from understanding how the program is structured in a way that's, you know, a little more detailed than, you know, just knowing it's a tax credit. So we're going to go into a little bit about what a deal looks like. And um, I'm also going to talk um, when the presentation comes to me about how rent is, is computed and um, and how uh, rent is really not based on your client's income like it might be if they have a, a Section 8 voucher um, or a Housing Choice voucher. Um, 
and it's a, and oftentimes you'll see tenants be paying more than 30% of their income. And I'll, I'll try to give you an explanation about why that is. Um, evictions under the program and non and non renewals of uh, leases have to be for good cause. We'll talk about that. Um, the uh, a, a, a LIHTC unit or a LIHTC building or a LIHTC development will uh, have a restrictive covenant agreement that'll be recorded in the land records and uh, we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like and, and who, how, how that's enforceable um, by third parties. And then the last part, which is really um, Mark Schwartz's bailiwick, is that you know, relationships with your allocating agency are key. And in this case, the tax credit allocating agency is, is uh, Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency. So, so we can talk about how you as an advocate can, um, can uh, use those relationships to your advantage and to your client's advantage. So now I'm going to turn it over to Dina, and Dina, I'll, I'll keep the controls if you want to tell me when to, to sure. move. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. So hello, everybody. Happy Friday. I know this has been a great conference, and um, thank you, Plan, for um, offering a conference remotely and, vi and virtually. I think um, where, you know, as hard as this COVID um, process has um, kind of restrictions have been, there have been these sort of little silver linings where many people can attend events and conferences that they might otherwise not have been able to uh, um, attend due to travel restrictions, et cetera. So, but that we're grateful. We're very happy that you're here. Um, we do do, as Kim said, we do do a lot of work within the space of the low-income housing tax credit and the developments that generate from the low-income housing tax credit. Um, our clients are nonprofit providers of affordable housing. That is in some ways, it's an interesting tension because while we, um, because some of our clients are landlords, our, um, our role in helping with that development, um, in addition to helping our clients structure and understand how to put together a transaction that will result in affordable housing development, is also to make, you know, to help guide them in making sure that they're in compliant with all of the obligations that will benefit the residents who are gonna live in their, um, in their buildings. So, while we represent landlords, we're very much advocates for the tenants' rights, and we just want to make sure that that's also how you are understanding like this presentation. So the low-income housing tax credit, as Kim said, this is somewhat of a, um, a reinforcement of Kim's overview, is a tax credit. It's, um, it's sort of role within the structure of um, financing of affordable housing is, to, is um, an opportunity for private investment to be part participants in public private, usually public private ventures, but it really is an attempt to spur private investment in the development of affordable housing. So how it works is that investors, is that um, allocating agencies, and we're gonna talk a little bit about the time frame in a minute, allocating agencies such as Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency receive an allocation of tax credits from the federal government, the fed, and then they, through a process called the Qualified Allocation Plan, again, we're gonna talk about in a minute, um, make available to developers a tax credit uh, through a competitive process, that an allocation of tax credits. The developers then seek to get um, bids from investors who are, who are interested in participating with the developer in a development and who purchase an interest in the development itself. Um, and they, in developers use the money that the investors give them to help do the um, construction and development of that particular project. So the investors invest um, 
uh, and they use the funds as capital for construction. I guess that's fundamentally the answer. Um, credits are very, very competitive, and there's a lot of reasons why investors want to invest in a affordable housing development. Sometimes it has to do with um, meeting their um, their CRA requirements, Community Reinvestment Act requirements. Sometimes it's for other obligations or other um, kind of comp uh, needs to be doing investments in communities. And sometimes it's just a business transaction. But the value, can you give a real life example? Um, a real life example of a development or a real life example of a, um, of what it would, what it might, what, what kind of, how much money they might put in. Because we're gonna, we're gonna, if we, we are gonna talk about a project in just a couple of minutes that might help. Is that, is that okay? Okay, well, yeah, oh, from the start. I think we're gonna, you mean that, all right, you know what, Let, let's hold that for a second. We're gonna walk, this is a question from somebody in the chat who's asked us to talk about a real life example. And we have an example in just a couple slides. So if you, if you give a shot, if, we're gonna walk through just a little bit more of the basics and then I think we can get, we can get to the example, if that, if that would be helpful. Hopefully that will be helpful. So let's just go to the next one and we, cause maybe it's gonna be helpful to get to the, to the example. Um, just the context of the low income housing tax credit, it is a, it is a um, provision, the low income housing tax credit is a provision within the tax code. It was created by the Tax Reform Act of 1986 and has been modified a number of times. The way that the low income housing tax credit is administered it is a joint administration between the IRS and the state allocating agency. So the IRS creates the regulations and the, obviously the um, statute was created by Congress and the, the um, LIHTC rules and regulations require that the allocating agencies sort of implement the rules and administer um, compliance. Section 42, for those of you who are tax code geeks, is the largest single section of the tax code. Uh, it's pretty long, but you would think it would, you know, something that's the largest single section of the tax code would be pages and pages. It's not quite that long, but it, it is, you know, substantial. But more importantly, that because of the way that we have um, had a disinvestment of um, uh, funding for affordable housing through HUD and through other kinds of, you know, just particularly through the federal, federal programs, it, over time, and since 1986, it, you know, at this point, um, the low-income housing tax credit and the use of the low-income housing tax credit to help fund and finance the construction of affordable housing accounts for about 90% of all affordable rental housing that's being created today. Since the inception of the low-income housing tax credit, about 3 million rental unit, affordable housing units have been created um, throughout the country. And this is a rental housing structure only. There is a provision for how um, homeownership can be the end result of a LIHTC development, but LIHTC is only addressing affordable rental housing. Um, there are two kinds of low-income housing tax credits. One is called um, kind of colloquially the 4% credit, one's called the 9% credit. 9% credits are the most competitive and that's the ones we're most gonna talk about today. Um, but your clients can be living in a building, you know, from, a, from the outside view, whether your client's in a 4% building or a 9% building is completely irrelevant. This is really just for us who do the development to understand that the 9% credits yield more money for, for the developers and um, 
um, are very, very, very competitive. Um, that competitive being that the, um, they're awarded through the Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency and the more competitive, and they're very competitive. So um, Pennsylvania Finance Agency gets something like 60 to 70 applications per year and um, only can fund about 30. Uh, for your purposes, one of the most important things is that if it, if a project has been financed at all with the low-income tax credit, probably closer to eighty. Well, I was trying to be you know right. under accounting, probably about eighty applications here. But if from your perspective, I think, or from all of our perspective, one of the important and essential parts about a development that it was financed with or constructed with um, an investment that that is through the low-income housing tax credit structure is that the project, the development must be compliant for 15 years with all of the rules and regulations of the low-income housing tax credit system program. Everybody calls it something different. And in addition, the federal law requires that, that the um, development stay compliant for an additional 15 years. So really it's a 30-year compliance requirement States may extend that compliance period beyond the 30 years that the federal government requires. And so around the country, different state allocating agencies have created longer, many instances, a longer, what we're calling affordability period. In Pennsylvania, for projects that were awarded uh, allocation of tax credits in 2019, they now have an obligation to keep the project affordable in compliance with the low-income housing tax credit rules and regulations, and so we're gonna explain those in a minute for 35 years and starting in 2020, any development that is awarded an allocation tax credits in 2020 and beyond will have a 40 year requirement for long-term affordability. And we're gonna talk about what those affordability um, requirements are in just a minute. Um, so we, you know, we as advocates um, for affordable housing throughout the state of Pennsylvania have advocated to the Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency that it increase its affordability um, system and keep it and, and extend it from 30, first from 30 to 35 and now from 35 to 40. There are just a few exceptions to when a project must maintain these affordability restrictions. Oh, this we drop down, right? Yeah. So a building that has been financed through the long-term housing tax credit structure must maintain this affordability requirements, the rent and income restrictions for 40 years. There are a few exceptions to that rule. One is that in addition to some, some projects, most projects, in addition to being financed with the use of the low-income housing tax credit and the investment that comes through the low-income um, low income housing tax credit, might also get some kind of a loan in order to either construct or for permanent, you know, um, to help, to help um, the costs of construction and or operations. If there is a legitimate foreclosure on that loan, then any foreclosure will wipe <laughs> out the affordability restrictions. There is something that many of us who are advocates, again, for long-term affordability have worked on, and that is something, uh, work, not worked on, but have advocated to alert housing allocating agencies to and the IRS is the idea of a planned foreclosure. And a planned foreclosure is when somebody who has an, um, an ownership interest in the building makes a loan to the project and then says, oh, they couldn't pay us back, and then forecloses. 
and then tries to wipe out the eligibility, the um, affordability restrictions. So if anybody thinks that they might be seeing something like a planned foreclosure or they have tenants who are living in a building with a tenant say, oh, we just heard that, that a lender foreclosed on the building and now we're going to lose, there's no more affordability restrictions. We would really like to know that because there aren't that many actual foreclosures in the tax credit environment. Um, but there is, a, you know, there is this concern about planned foreclosures. So again, if you see something like this, or you hear about um, a building that's going through a foreclosure that, that you know was financed through the low-income housing tax credit structure, we would really like to know about it, particularly if it's in Pennsylvania. Um, another way, there are two other ways that a project can be, um, can, there can be some exceptions to affordability restrictions. Second one's a qualified contract, which we're not going to talk about here, but if we don't need to talk about it here, given, you know, in the, in the interest of time in Pennsylvania, you can't use this op, this option in order to, rem, um, to get relief from affordability restrictions. It's considered waived in Pennsylvania, so we don't have to talk about that. Um, but the third is home ownership in, in year 15. So remember, this was a 30-year affordability, um, by federal law, 30-year 30, 30 affordability um, obligation. After the first 15 years, if the um, owners of the rental housing have made a promise up front that they would turn the units into home ownership, then after 15 years, they can sell the units, the individual units, to tenants. And at the time that they um, transfer the ownership interest, then the long-term affordability restrictions are, are released. So those are really, the, there are very few exceptions and um, we, we at Regional Housing work with a number of legal aid programs around the country. We're sort of advocates together on monitoring when we hear that there are state housing finance agencies who are letting people out of long-term use restrict, uh, uh, affordability restrictions, or if we hear of owners who are trying to get relief from long-term affordability restrictions. So again, if you are hearing of a project that you believe was a, um, financed with a tax credit and you are, have clients or you are hearing as advocates that the owners are trying to get relief from these affordability restrictions, we would very much like to know about it. Um, I'm run out of time if I go. Let's just go through the next ones real quick. Um, in order to live, one of the restrictions of um, living in a LIHTC building development is that the um, there all LIHTC buildings are restricted for um, uh, income levels and up until 19 in 2017 the um, all uh, the income limits were, were restricted to up to 60 percent of AMI in 2017 there was a change in structure that now allows the income limits to go up to 80 percent in certain circumstances with a project with a system called um, income averaging. Uh, and we're not gonna talk about this. We're just gonna tell you that you should be asking about when the building came online, if you have tenants who are in the building. Um, if, you have a if you have a client who's in a, in a LIHTC building um, and there's some questions about whether or not they can qualify based on their income, if their income is at or below 60% of AMI, they're gonna qualify in almost all buildings, whether they are, Admitted is one question, but they should qualify if their income is at 60% or below. And in some instances, it can go up to 80% depending on the building. 
Nina, can I, jump in for, can I jump in for one second? Sure. It, something you may want to look for is, in, and I'm sure uh, Tim and Nina are going to get to this, that owners of LIHTC properties in general have to accept housing choice vouchers. Yeah, come, so someone nice comes to them. And, okay. So well, no, go for it. Take, take it. No, take I was, it. I was only going to say that the change to allow up to 80% could put some people with a, a voucher uh, in a situation where the LIHTC rent exceeds the voucher rent and the owner may come back and say, well, we don't have to accept the voucher uh, in this unit because we could get more money on the, on the general market. And if you have that situation or you see it, uh, please let us know. I think we could help you and help your client in that situation. The argument to, to allow income averaging in the first place, I mean, that, that's certainly one of the downsides. Um, one of the upsides is that if you can, if you're a LIHTC developer and you can charge um, or you can, you can uh, rent to people up to 80%, that means that you're, um, you're not, their income is higher and therefore um, your, the rent you can charge is higher. So you might be able to use uh, some of those 80% units to finance um, or do a rent subsidy for people that are um, very low income, you know, at, at 30 and 20%. So that was sort of the, I think that was part of the argument behind that change. Part of the argument. Yeah. Yeah. Can you just bring up, Kim, can you bring out the last piece on this, um, this particular like slide? If a tenant is living in a building that was already qual that where, where when they entered the building, it was, a, they entered into a LIHTC building, and at the time they entered, their income was below, say, 60% AMI, but now they've become over 60% AMI. They are protected once they have been initially qualified for um, uh, occupancy. So people don't have to worry that if their income gets above the income qualifications for that building, say 60% AMI, that they're going to be, you know, that they're going to have to leave the building. Um, the next one. Let's go to the next one. Oh, right. So um, consequences for non-compliance. Many, many, many of the participants who are developers in the low-income housing tax credit system are um, repeat business owners. They do this as part of their business model, both the nonprofit side and the for-profit side. So one of the large, one of the biggest um, deterrents against non-compliance is the fact that you want to go go back to the allocating agencies that where you want to do work and the jurisdictions where you want to do work and get another allocation of tax credits. And if you're non-compliant, it, it could be either that next time you go back and you try to get an allocation of tax credits, you have um, a, a kind of a stain on your record, or if the way that the allocating agency makes a, a determination of who's gonna get an allocation of credits is based on a point system, you're gonna get um, negative points. So um, owners of the property, um, from, from a compliance perspective, it's both the agency that does the compliance and then they report to the IRS. If there is non-compliant, the owner might not receive the tax credits that it was hoping to receive as part of the benefit of being part of this development. And that's a pretty big deterrent. It's a pretty big um, stain, for, uh, pretty big uh, penalty for non-compliance. The allocating agency, in this instance, Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency, may say you're not a um, good player, a good partner in this business, and um, discourage or prevent you from getting a future allocation of tax credits. And 
state housing finance agencies can create um, consequences for owners at the discretion of the allocating agencies. So um, again, that's something to advocate for. And Mark will talk more about the role of advocacy in um, as um, affordable housing advocates or as advocates for low-income tenants and how you might use some of that, um, how you might advocate for certain decisions or certain um, provisions at the, at, the, at the housing finance agency as it relates to um, either owners and their operations of the, of the building or um, on their ability to get a future allocation of credits. But again, most of the people in this business do do it on a repeat basis. And so they, you know, probably the biggest incentive is that they wanna be able to come back and, and, and do more development. Um, Mark, I'm gonna let you do this one because you do this really well. This is like one of your favorite things to take through. So, so this just shows you the uh, structure of a low-income housing tax credit deal. And uh, I particularly like the colors. So if you have any comments on the colors, um, feel free to get back. So in box number one, you have the Internal Revenue Service allocates tax credits to each state based on population. And Pennsylvania currently gets about $35 million of tax credits or 36 million a year. And that 35 or 36 million um, equals in the range of $350 million worth of private investment. So it gives you a sense of how much money we're talking about. Uh, in box number two, the state allocating agency, which is PHFA, which we all love, and um, no, uh, adopts what's called the QAP, a Qualified Allocation Plan. And it re reflects the state's priorities for housing development. And it basically tells developers the type of deals that uh, PHFA is interested in funding, what developers uh, have to promise to do in terms of affordability, uh, Dina mentioned earlier, uh, keeping affordability for 40 years now instead of just the statutorily required 30 years, uh, and having provisions saying you can't discriminate against, um, as an example, people who are the victims of domestic violence because they are victims of domestic violence. So the allocation plan is about 30 some pages long and developers study it to figure out what PHFA wants. In response to the allocation plan, number three, developers submit proposals to, the, uh, to PHFA saying we would like to develop housing for domestic violence victims or youth aging out of foster care or to redevelop the public housing units in our community. And they submit them to PHFA. PHFA reviews them and at number four, uh, PHFA awards tax credits to some of the developers in Pennsylvania. It's usually about um, three out of eight developers, maybe two out of eight developers or a quarter. Uh, and they award them generally in accordance with the priorities that are set in the allocation plan. Um, number five, once the developer gets the credits, um, they sell the credits to investors in return for equity to build the development and operate the development. And generally investors 
are, for the most part, banks. Not always. Sometimes there are syndicators who put together groups of people to buy the uh, equity, buy the credits. But, um, you know, a, a RBC or a PNC or a Citizens Bank, a lot of the names that you may be familiar with are frequently the purchasers of tax credits. The developer takes the equity they get from the sale of the credits. Frequently, they combine that with other sources of money like community development block grant funds or home funds or fair funds or national housing trust funds. And in, in general, uh, LIHTC will be about 70 some percent of the total housing development cost. Uh, in a rural area, it may be a larger amount. In an urban area, it may be a smaller amount. But basically the developer takes the money, they build it, the building and they operate it and hopefully they're housing, providing good housing for uh, uh, lower income people. Uh, number seven is on an annual basis, the developer submits compliance reports to the allocating agency and promises the agency that they are, they submit a form which they basically promise, they swear, they attest that they are certified. compliance, certified, right, that's certified. the word I was looking for. They certify to the allocating agency that they are in compliance with all the requirements of the low-income housing tax credit. And that is, in a nutshell, the official process for what it looks like to develop uh, affordable housing using low-income housing tax credits. Mark, can I add one or two things? Absolutely. Quickly. So um, one, I just want to um, explain a little bit on number five. When we say that the um, investors um, provide equity into the deal, I realize that that's the kind of um, vernacular, that's kind of language that we use. But sometimes people say to me, what's equity and what's debt? And what do you mean by that? So the equity means that the investors are coming into a transaction. They're coming in and saying, we know you, the developer, are going to put together some kind of a project that's going to result in a building or more than or multiple buildings. And we want to be a part, we want to be partial owners. And we're going to, um, in return for getting an ownership stake in that project, we're going to give you cash, equity, cash, to help you build and develop and finance that development. So that's what equity means. It means that they're putting money, cash, into a development. And, and, and um, can I can just follow up there for real quick? Yeah. The other part of that, which number five doesn't really explain, uh, is that you don't really sell tax credit. Thank you. Right. They're not, not they're supposed not to say that. Right? What you really do is the developers form a partnership, generally. And they don't sell the credits, but they sell an interest in the partnership to the investors, which allows the investors to take the credits. So you can't go to the store and say, hey, I'll give you five tax credits for $50. But you can say, I'm going to form a partnership. Would you like to purchase generally interest in the partnership right generally 99.9% of the partnership interest so hopefully that clarifies that a little bit yeah so when you hear people saying they're selling credits they're really selling a portion of the ownership partnership the partnership that was formed to own the 
uh, affordable housing development. And so if you guys as advocates, and we can get stuck here for a while, but I just like from an advocate's perspective, again, trying to think about this is that when you look at a building and we're going to talk about how you'll know whether or not this is a tax credit building, because we're, I think Kim, one of us is going to talk about the, um, the fact that there is a, a lease addendum and there's also a, um, an indenture that's recorded against the real estate. And if you see the, you know, you, 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 that's an indication if there's an indenture recorded against the real estate. That, that this is a light tech building. But when you're looking to see if it's a light tech building, it's probably, you know, it's gonna be owned by a partnership and you may not know like, oh, who's the nonprofit sponsor? Or who's the for-profit sponsor? So sometimes you have to do a little digging to figure out um, who the, you know, the owner is usually just this, uh, it's a partnership that was created for the sole purpose of developing and operating and owning this particular project. So. If you want to talk more later about how do you know who are the who's the wizard behind the wall and who is the real parties behind the any one particular development, we can help you sort of sort that through. But in the interest of time, unless people have a specific question, we should get to getting the answer for Susan of like what does a deal look like. Which is back to Kim, who's very good at talking numbers. Sure. <laughs> so um, so here is an. Uh, you know, a, a really simplified example of um, of how you put together, at, you know, you're the developer and this is how you put together your um, development budget to, uh, to to fund your deal and to basically pay for your construction and, and all your other costs, your, they call them soft costs, your your lawyers, your architect and, and the other, um, you know, the non uh, bricks and mortar stuff. So let's let's just take an example. This is, you know, uh, let's let's say that the total cost of your project is a million dollars. Obviously, you're not going to do a project for a million dollars. It's usually more like ten million, um, just economies of scale. But just for this, for for the math, we just say it's a million dollars. So the first thing you need to do is you need to take out costs not in basis. Now that's if you're um, if you're an accountant or if you're a, uh, a depreciation person or an IRS person, that's basically costs that you can't depreciate. It's usually the, the value of the land. That's, that's something that you have to subtract from um, your total costs. Um, so, so you have to figure out what's the cost that I, can, um, that I can put in basis and actually claim credits against. And so in this example, it's, uh, you take out $100,000 and so, that, so your total cost comes down to, to $900,000. So, um, so if you want a 9% credit, that's essentially it's basically a present value calculation of if you're getting um, credits every year for 10 years, um, uh, you multiply that by 9%. And so your annual credits are going to be 81,000. So, um, and then, so over 10 years so the total award is going to be um, 810,000. So, so when Schwartz said earlier, when he was showing you that chart, um, you know, we get 30, Pennsylvania gets 35 million, credits a year and that translates to 310 uh, million in investment. That's why, because it's an over a 10 year period. Um, so, so, so basically the allocating agency will give you this award and will give you a piece of paper and says, you got this award, you won the competitive beauty contest, you beat, um, you know, you're, you're the one out of four that got the credits. And, um, and so here's the award, we'll give you 810,000. And then, then you as the developer will go out and into the market and try to find a partner to come in and, and purchase the partnership interest. Um, and, and then uh, the partner will, depending on where you are, depending on what kind of project it is, depending on what the investor's need is for uh, Community Reinvestment Act credit or 
um, depending on how hot the market is, they'll, they'll bid and give you a, a price. And in this example, they'll give you 98 cents uh, for every dollar of tax credit. So, so basically, um, when you do the math, um, um, after you, you know, uh, you'll, this deal, you'll have, it's, it's a million dollar total cost in the beginning. And then after you get your award, you'll have about um, almost 800,000 of the, um, the deal will be funded through the tax credit program. So, so you'll have gaps you'll, and your gap funding is, is basically, you're gonna have to go out as the developer and figure, that, figure out what that is. So it could be um, local home money, local, um, your local uh, CDBG money. Um, is that right? Am I, am I saying that wrong? <laughs> um, it, you know, it's your local housing trust fund. Um, it could be uh, PHFA could give you gap funding, although um, yeah, they, they have a, a national housing trust fund that could go into these deals. So it's basically up to you and it's somewhere between, you know, 10 to 30% of the deal. You might have to go out and raise on your, on yourself. Um, and it's and, usually, and, yeah, go ahead, Mark. And, and just, I mean, I'm sure somebody's going to get to this, but um, understanding that there's a gap in a deal uh, is important if you're the developer, but it's also important if you're in a legal services program, because while there are restrictions that come with LIHTC, there are other restrictions that come with the fund gap funding. So if it's CDBG funds or home funds or whatever the other, it could be rental, uh, rental assistance funds. Um, it's really important to know what the gap funding is because the restrictions on the owner and the rights of tenants may be stronger so, Mark, how would you know funds. that? So can you give them an example of where you would find out that information? Um, well, why don't you do that? Because that's a very good question. <laughs> um, so not to, not to deflect too much from where Kim is going on this, but that uh, Mark is right. If the project has additional sources of funding in it, that LIHTC is the base, right? That's the requirement. So you have to comply with the LIHTC program. In many, many, many transactions, particularly in cities where you know, the cost of construction is high or there just happens to be more federal aid like, or there's a housing trust fund where those funds can be set aside and used for affordable housing development. There may be other obligations that come with those other funding sources. Typically, typically, if it is um, coming from any one of a, a federal agencies or a, or a local agency that is, um, that is administering federal, federal funds, they will secure their obligations. They'll put money into a deal and for other reasons, including that just long-term um, restriction, they will put a mortgage on the property and make, you know, any funds they're putting in, they'll put in as a mortgage, they'll put in as a loan and they'll um, secure that loan with a mortgage, but they will also have some kind of a regulatory agreement or a restrictive use agreement on the real estate. So if you're trying to figure out, oh, what were the sources of funding for this property? Um, and maybe, you know, what are the, uh, and how might this project be obligated by, um, by law as to limits on income or other kinds of restrictions, you know, do a title search and find out what are the restrictions against title and see whether there's a regulatory agreement, see whether there's a mortgage, see whether there's a, you know, a use restrictive agreement somewhere um, that's recorded against title. Increasingly, even in Pennsylvania, there's all kinds of, of you know, people are so desperate to meet the, that gap that, I'm desperate, but they're, they're motivated and creative for meeting the gap. 
that there are some now kind of nonprofit funding sources too that, that might say, we're going to give you money. And in return for giving you $100,000, you have to promise that three of the units might be made available to somebody who has intellectual disabilities, but who is able to be employed. And so you might want to see whether that's one of the obligations on the project. It certainly wouldn't be on every unit in the project, but it would be an obligation of that particular developer once they got the money to meet those requirements as set forth in whatever the restrictions are against the, against the real estate. And if you find one that of these deals and you get stuck, uh, calling Dina or Kim or somebody at regional housing can certainly help you yeah. try to figure this out. Yeah, it's not always, it's not obvious to the naked eye, so you have to do a little digging. All right, Kim, sorry, we, diver we digressed. Next slide. Uh, I think so, yeah. This is oh, Kelly. If I, sorry, if I can That's just fine. launch the first of the CLE poll boxes, you'll have a minute and a half to respond. Thanks, um, Dina, please feel free to continue. Sure. Thanks. Um, yeah, here comes the part that you guys really probably were waiting for because all the rest of it is, you know, like how is a deal developed? But now you're going to get to the part where Kim's going to talk about rental restrictions because she's really good at that too. <laughs> yeah, my, my mouse has stopped working. So. Oh, I, I know if I can, can I do a share? Can you make me? Uh, let's see. We, we have the, uh-oh, uh-oh. It was probably because of the poll box. Sometimes yeah, it does that randomly. Yeah. So um, see if you're able to do it now. Oh, Kim, okay. turns up. There you go. See if you can better? advance on the slide. Okay. It seems like it would be again. a good time to get cookies. <laughs> <laughs> sure. All right. So this, I guess this is my, I'll take it over here. So yeah. Everybody can hear me and I'm not froze, frozen, okay. You you, are, you look frozen, but you're not sounding, oh, there you go. Now, now oh, we great. see you. Okay, now great. You. Thank you. Okay. Um, so, so let's see. So, so just like other programs, LightTech composes both um, a maximum tenant income and a, and a maximum rent that, that the landlord can charge. So, and, um, and the income is, is based on the HUD area median gross income so a lot uh, it defaults to the metropolitan area so it's often county-wide but if you're in a metropolitan area it could cross counties and there's um so there's a picture of st louis and and then east st louis and, um okay so uh so it can cross state lines too if you're in the metropolitan statistical area but anyway so so how is litech rent determined so so the one of the quirks about litech is the way um, rent is determined and how, how it often may result in your client paying more than 30% of their income towards rent um, because, and because of these, these little quirky rules. So I'm gonna try to give you an example so you can really understand that. Um, so it's, it's not based on your client's income, it's based on their imputed income. And the imputed income is determined based on the unit. It's basically um, tied to the unit um, and it's, it's a bedroom size and it's also what kind of unit is it? Is the unit um, targeted for um, families that are making 60% area median income? Is it targeted for somebody making 50%? Is it targeted for somebody making 20%? So, so that's all gonna really determine how, how the rent is, uh, is, the maximum rent is calculated. And it's not based on the actual income of your client. So, and, and, um, and the, the, 
the weird and yeah, and I see somebody uh, with a question. So if Dina could, if somebody else could yeah. monitor, I'd be happy to, to answer those. So. Oh, Gary wants the poll box back up. Oh, okay. It's all about the CLE. So um, I'm not going to put the poll box up. <coughs> Excuse me, put the poll box back up. If by chance you didn't happen to have time to respond, please just um, chat box me your name and I will make sure you receive credit. So, so, the, so the quirky uh, rule is that um, one bedroom is if you if you're in a one bedroom unit, it's basically one and a half persons. So you have to go to the one and a half persons um, uh, area median income, and you have to you have to figure it out from that. So let me give you an example. Right. So this is um, so in Dauphin County, um, a four person family at sixty percent, um, they can't make more than forty eight thousand six hundred sixty. This is actually nine. Uh, 2019 figures. I didn't update it for 2020, but because um, it's just been such a crappy year that I'm going to pretend 2020 never happened. So um, anyway, uh, so the so so if you're just trying to figure out what's 30% of what would a family making that what would be an affordable rent if they're not paying more than 30% of their income, then you know you do the calc you do the math and it's basically you, you divide by 12 and then multiply by 0.3 and you get they're not going to be paying more than um, 12, 16 a month. Um, so that, that would basically, that would, if you're using that 30% rule. Um, so under, so, that, so that's basically, that would be affordable. So carrying over that 40 affordable rent um, in the LIHTC program, that works if you're a, a four person family and um, you're in a, you're a two, you're in a two bedroom. So the, what the LIHTC program does, it doesn't look at the fact that you have a four person family. It looks at how um, how, how big is the unit you're in. So if you're in a two bedroom, it's, it assumes that there's gonna be three people occupying that. So, so it looks at the, the three family uh, median income at 60% and somebody it's, um, so that, that figure for Dauphin County in 2019 was 43,800. So, um, so the maximum rent the landlord could charge for that unit under the LIHTC program is 1,095. So in that case, 1,095 is less than 30% income so um, that rent would be affordable so so you're a little you're a little squeezed in because you're only you know it's uh, four people occupying two bedrooms but um, but you know that's it's basically yeah <laughs> so then um, if if we change that and say that you're in um, you're going to go to a three-bedroom unit then it's you're going to end up being rent burdened so you have the same family same size um, same 60% unit um, so uh, if you do the math, um, the, under the LIHTC program, the landlord's allowed to assume that 4.5 people are in that unit. So if you actually do the, go to the charts and see what a 4.5 person family, the area median income at 60%, it would be 50,000. And in that case, um, you do the math and um, the most the landlord could charge there is gonna be um, uh, 1,265, which is a month, which is more than, um, what you know, thirty percent of your income is. So, um, so therefore, the rent would not be affordable. But you know, it's it's not by much in this example. But that's that basically shows you that um, you know that uh, ways in which the rent could be more than thirty percent of your client's income. Now, that's often going to be the case. Um, you know, basically, all families making less than um, the maximum income uh, is, are going to be paying more than thirty percent of the rent unless the, the landlord charges less than the maximum rent. And, 
there's usually not a whole lot of incentive for a landlord to do that. Um, uh, or if the family economizes by living in a smaller unit, provided that's allowed, because um, uh, they, they might have some uh, standards they have to, or, or, or if they have a voucher or subsidy. And, and this is also, you know, if your client is, uh, you know, you might have a client that could qualify for a 50% unit, but the only units that are now available um, are 60% units. So that, that would even put more burden on your client. So, um, so uh, you know, it could be that they, they, the landlord um, or the, the management agent would do the rental application and see that, hey, uh, even though you're only making 50%, you want, you want to get into this building, only 60% units are open. Um, we find that you have enough income um, to, uh, to, to occupy the 60% unit, um, but we're going to charge you the maximum rent. And so we're going to be paying you know, closer to 40 or 50% of your rent. Of, of your income towards rent. So, so that's, that's sort of the quirk of the, the, the LIHTC program is that often clients are going to be paying more than 30% uh, of their income unless they have a voucher or rent subsidy. So this is an example of, uh, this is a study that, that's often cited because it, it was really very useful, but it's kind of old. Um, it's from 2012, but um, this basically shows rent burden households and it compares LIHTC, people in LIHTC units with people, uh, the, the general population. Um, and so the, the, the bigger blue, the darker blue you see on this tends is the more rent burden. So, so if, if you look at this, um, really the, the, the tenants that benefit the most, at, the LIHTC tenants that benefit the most, in other words, have the least rent burden, tend to be in the lower 30% units because um, usually those come with some kind of subsidy, some kind of operating subsidy. Um, so that allows them, so, so they're paying less than um, or closer to 30% of, uh, of their income towards rent. Um, when you get to the 31 to 50% AMI uh, tenants, the people earning that, they're not, um, they're not extremely low income, they're just low income. They tend to be more rent burdened. Um, so, uh, so, and then, um, so there you go, you have, you know, you see a lot of blue there. So, so that, and that's, that's sort of the quirk of the example I showed you before. You're often going to be paying more than 30% than of your income towards rent, especially in those, um, if you're in a 50 or 60% unit. Um, okay. Hey, so Kim. Yeah. I think we should stop to see if there's any questions. Yeah. Like, is anybody willing to say they have a question? <laughs> or, I mean, or for it, us, for, yeah, I will say that even for us, we're like, there are, no, there are a number of maps about what is the maximum rents that could be charged per unit. There are multiple funding sources that are now used to provide support and operating support, some coming from housing agencies, uh, you, know, uh, you know, yeah, housing authorities, some coming internally that people might take a portion of the money they have for the project and set it aside. Some of it might be coming from other agencies. It is like a very, very complicated process uh, but if we kind of want, like, this is sort of the, like the, the, the crux of how rents are calculated. And, um, you know, I know that sometimes at that tenants do sometimes go to legal services office and say, I'm, they charge me too much, or, uh, you know, they, they rejected me because I couldn't make this rent. Um, so if you have any questions, we, we can hold them and you can ask later, you can send a chat and email us. But if you want to talk about calculating rents, We'll do our very best to try to make it English, you know. Like Kim, I, I, Kim always does this because she's clearer than 
way clearer than me, but like it, it is complicated. So if you right. and, and often want to talk about find, it, I'm really happy to talk about it. I have to say often you may find somebody coming to your office saying, but the person down the hall pays a different rent than I pay. Yeah. How's that possible? And I think when you look at some of this stuff, you know, somebody's in a 30% unit, somebody's in a 50% unit, somebody's in a 60% unit, somebody has a housing voucher. There's many, many ways within the purview, uh, the parameters of the LIHTC that people could be paying different rents. It doesn't mean that someone made a mistake or that they're discriminating against anybody. Um, now, could. They could but, have made a mistake. So it is right. important to check it, but it yeah. doesn't mean that you're being discriminated. It doesn't right. mean that there's a, it's just that there's a difference, right? Yes. Um, I'm also going to say it's five of three, so I'm going to. Yeah. Right. And I guess, I guess I one important make, point I want to make about rent is, is um, you know, all, you know, the lower income units, the ones that are targeted to lower income families, like 30 and 50% are often, you know, uh, they often disappear and get rented up uh, more quickly than um, the 60% unit. So your client may be in a 60% unit, even though they could qualify for a 50% unit. Right. So, um, so one thing that it's important for your clients to, to be able to ask is, is there a, is there a way I can get my unit requalified? And it wouldn't necessarily mean they have to move, but is there, because often the units are floating, but is there a way I can, you know, be qualified for a 50% unit? Is there an opening there? You know, maybe at recertification, that's something that you should ask, especially or if they're struggling. Or a 20% yeah. unit. I mean, every right, development should have yeah. a, a percentage of units that are uh, rented to people at 20% of AMI. So they're, no matter where it is, um, all the units being currently being developed in Pennsylvania have some percentage of units being developed for people at 20% of AMI. So and, the reason why, and, the, and the reason why there's so many of these different levels, the 20% is in part a response, a response to advocates pushing to make sure that there were lower income units, that, that every project had a set aside of units for people who were very, very low income. And the remainder of this 40 and 60 and 50 comes from other statutory parts of the, the LIHTC structure, which we won't bore you with. But that's, it's not just because people are trying to be like nifty about income levels. It's because no, but they're sort of required by law. Well, and they're also, and then I'll shut up for a minute. But also when we went back and talked about a qualified allocation plan earlier, There's a priority in the allocation plan for people who rent more units to tenants below 50% or 40%. So if a developer wants to get credits, it's an advantage to them to promise to rent more units below 60% of median. And that's what the reason a lot of people have different levels of units. Was there a question that you wanted to answer? No, it, no I just chatted. It was like, where's the list? Of, oh, oh, got it, got it. Okay. I just chatted it back. The PHFA has it. I chatted it back. <laughs> there we go. Um, okay. So let's see. So let me talk briefly about evictions. Um, so so LIHTC, the, in the LIHTC program, you, um, owners are prohibited from evicting residents uh, other than good cause. And so this is a mandated by the IRS and also by PHFA. Um, and so PHFAs, so I, I skipped ahead since we're running short on, a little short on time. So, uh, so PHFA, there's, 
requires that um, all uh, Y-Tech units have a, basically a PHFA lease addendum. And, you know, it's, I think it's a one or two page addendum. It's, you know, it's, it's clearly marked at the top. And, um, and one of the things that says on the lease addendum is that you, that you can't be evicted except for um, good cause. And it defines good cause as serious and repeated violations of the lease. Um, and, and Kim, could I say, one of the yeah. reasons there is a lease addendum is that legal services programs before there was a lease addendum would have clients come in, say they're in a lie tech unit, the legal services person will go to court and say to the, to the judge, well, these, my client can't be evicted except for good cause. And the owners would say, no, this isn't a lie tech unit. And the legal services people would then have to go to the courthouse or wherever they record uh, deeds, get a copy of the lease uh, of the restrictive covenant agreement and come back to court to show the judge that it really was a LIHTC unit. And this happened many, many times in Philadelphia. Uh, and, you know, I think they're the people in Philly brought this to our attention. And then we brought it to PHFA's attention. But that is a reason that we do have a lease addendum is that owners frequently denied that the units were LIHTC units to uh, the local judges. Sorry, I just thought there was a good background there. The lease addendum also not, not only does it define good cause, it, it should have um, it has a provision that's that protects victims of domestic violence, so they can't be evicted for um, for um, too many uh, uh, law enforcement calls to the unit uh, to protect um, against a um, an abuser and um, the fair. And it also says that you have to basically lease. It has to the the, the unit has to be leased in compliance with the Fair Housing Act and. Um, and it also, you can't discriminate as a landlord. You can't say, if you're in the LIHTC program, you can't refuse to take someone um, because they have a Section 8 voucher, so. Even if, even if they're not, therefore, going to be able to cheat. If, if you're in an 80%, you, well, yeah, they just basically can't discriminate against voucher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to step in. I was going to try to- No, that's fine, yeah, yeah. You know what? You can't do it, right? Right, I mean, yeah. So, um, so this is sort of good cause in the tax code. I'll, I'll sort of skip over this one. Um, so, uh, so PHFA sent, recently sent a reminder after some advocacy work that, um, that CLS did in, in, in conjunction with uh, Regional Housing Legal Services. Um, and PLA. A reminder and PLA. that you can't, so failure to renew a lease at the end of its term does not co constitute good cause eviction. So there's, um, uh, so that so that's 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 an issue that's hot now with with the um, the moratoriums and um, and you know whether that's but but that's 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 uh, that's a specific so let, let me run to uh, let, let me skip over this and if um, so in, in 2016 uh, CLS did a study of evictions um, in LIHTC developments and found that there were um, let's see, 563 complaints included termination of term as one of the reasons um, to uh, evict. And, um, and so 47% uh, of LIHTC developments filed at least one complaint that included a termination of term. And that's clearly a violation of uh, what we just saw um, and a violation of PHFA policy. So um, it looks like, you know, there, there are some particular bad actors. One law firm in particular filed them and, and um, 9% of the complaints were by one particular owner. So, so what we did is um, uh, 
a lot of these developments also had PRA funding, um, Philadelphia Redevelopment Authority funding. It's that soft funding that fills the gap that we talked about earlier. And so, um, so PRA, PRA stepped in and informed LIHTC um, owners that this is, you know, this is, you can't be doing this and you're going to develop, uh, this is going to be serious consequences for, for this development and for your ability to continue to, um, to develop developments in the future. And, and you know, as, as we said earlier, this is their business. If you're a developer of LIHTC units, um, that's your business and you want to, definitely you have to be on the, um, on the good side of, of uh, the funding authorities. Um, and PHFA sent, um, sent that uh, notice that uh, in their newsletter to people that, you know, end of lease term is not good cause. So, um, and then we also did some training with property managers to remind them of that property manager. So, so Mark, is there anything else you want to talk about on, on this particular issue? Before only, we only that if you see this happening in LIHTC units, please let us know. Yeah. Right. And this is something that's very easily corrected. PHFA will, um, Take, take action against owners who uh, uh, terminate a leasehold at the end of the lease term um, improperly. So if you, if you find this, let us know. Um, there's a question that's on the chat and I'm answering it. You'll tell me if I'm answering it wrong. Um, is The question is for tenants who are having habitability problems in a light tech unit, but common areas not being maintained, you know, is, is, is that a place where you can involve PHFA to get, to get um, to force the landlord to make the repairs? And my answer back is like, we should talk about it. If it's a pattern, if the owner is not responding, if there's been repeated requests and it's sort of, you know, some kind of a pattern, I don't know if PHFA would intervene if there was, um, you know, just sort of one unit, one tenant, one problem, but they, they might inquire. Um, but if it becomes a pattern, I think that that, I don't know, Mark, you may have a different interpretation. I think they would want to know, particularly if the, pro if the project is, if they're being non-responsive and, they're and it's, you know, a true like habitability issue. Yeah, um, I mean, if you're, if you're really talking about a habitability issue, again, I would encourage you to call Kim or Dina or somebody at regional housing and we could try and help you. Yeah. I mean, if the question is that the hallway is dirty and, um, I mean, I think that's- a bad property manager, right. Right, that, you know, right. But I mean, the first step is to go to the property manager and then go to the owner. Uh, and if that doesn't work, I think we could help you, particularly if, if it's a habitability issue. Uh, there's a form called Form 8823 that's filed against developers who are not complying with the requirements of the tax credit program. PHFA files it and, and submits it to, to IRS. And if you remember from the chart we showed, that was chart, uh, that was number seven. Yeah. It was non-compliance, and PHFA has an obligation to monitor for compliance. Um, so that's part of what their responsibility under the law is. Yeah. Uh, and they do file. And if you go to say number seven, developer submits compliance reports to the allocating agency, and the allocating agency has an obligation to monitor for compliance. So the agency files many 8823s a year. The consequences are really significant. This is not like a HUD program where if you don't comply with something, a court will say to the owner, go comply. Here, if you don't comply with habitability standards, the consequence to the owner of, of uh, PHFA filing an 8823 form 
could be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending upon how pervasive the noncompliance is. So there's a significant monetary incentive for owners to remain in compliance um, and not have 8823s. So it's a long way. It's a long way of just saying if you see habitability issues, yeah. um, talk to the manager, the owner, and if that doesn't work, talk to us. Um, the other thing I want to say about like all of because Kim really talked about tenants and eviction issues. We work with our clients as they have to put together tenant management plans, um, and uh, PHFA is pretty rigid and it's pretty rigorous. And you know every project has to have a language access um, option. Um, they're pretty rigorous on accessibility. They're pretty rigorous on fair housing. Um, there's a lot of certifications that owners have to comply with. Um, they then, you know, if they hire a property manager, they may try to impose some of the some of the contractual obligations on a property manager. But at the end of the day, the owners bound by a lot by a, a number of obligations that are imposed as the owner of a project, and they, you know, they have to have a certain. They, their lease can only include certain information, not other information. So, um, again, if you're in if you're in it with the LIHTC deal, I would encourage you also to ask for a copy of the property management plan, the tenant selection plan, etc. Kim, do we lose your sharing slide? I'm just I'm just uh, skipping ahead. So oh. okay, all right. So um, okay. And who um, whoever just said they'd like to, I, we saw the chat. We'd be happy to talk with you. You trying to get to Mark's part? Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess let's 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 go ahead and start doing that. Yeah, I, actually, I, I do what think is the restricted can... covenant. We want, do we want to spend a word um, talking yeah, about? Someone that? should discuss it. Someone should talk. All right, I'll do it really quickly. I was going to do this, but I'll do it really quickly. Um, the obligations under the low income housing tax credit, in return for getting an allocation of credits, you, the owner of the property, have to um, you are mandated to put a restriction of use and have it recorded against the title of the property that just got the tax credits. So it's called a bunch of different things. Sometimes it's a land use restriction agreement. In Pennsylvania, it's called a uh, indenture of use restrictive agreement. It must be filed against the real estate. And in Pennsylvania, it gets filed at the time that um, the, essentially the agency says, okay, you're ready to like start construction. Just call it that. And you should be able to see it. It is mandated by federal law. Um, it, uh, and, it may, and it includes, um, a number of the obligations of that particular developer and that owner of that real estate um, sets forth some of the tenants' rights. But one of the important things in it is that it articulates in the um, the LURA in the indenture restrictive covenants um, that tenants are third-party beneficiaries of the interests in the real estate. Right. So it's an important thing for tenants to know that they have rights that are associated with the fact that this property is a light tech property. So I, don't, yeah. I don't think we could. We're not um, going to talk about it. We don't we're not going to go too much into detail, but you have to know that one thing. If you, you know, if you learn something here that the restrictive covenant and the uh, things that the owners have agreed to do are enforceable by current tenants, tenants yeah. past tenants, and future tenants. Right. And Those who would be eligible. Yes. So I think, you know, from a legal services program's perspective, uh, this is incredibly important to be able to go into court and say, my client is a third party beneficiary pursuant to federal law. And here's a copy of the agreement that says that. 
And there are big cases. Uh, there was one in Oregon, and there was just recently one in Hawaii, which uh, federal courts have recognized and uh, uh, the rights of tenants to enforce the uh, affordability provisions of uh, the uh, LICAC. And it's where you, if the project just says it's 40 units, it will say in the LURA, the indenture, you know, six of the units must be set aside or five, four of the units are set aside for people at 20% income and, four, and 20 units are set for people at 50% income and the remainder at 60%. Is that important? Maybe, maybe not, but at least that's one of the places where you'll find that information. Yes, and, and that is the form that the people in Philadelphia would end up having to go and get and bring into court to prove to the judge that there were good cause restrictions on the properties. So the lease addendum and the LURA, those are two things when you, if you have a tenant that's a client that's come in and they say, I think you say, is this building qualified, you know, paid for with tax credits? And they go, I don't know. You can say, let me see a copy of your lease. And then if that doesn't help you, you can say, let me go look and see what's recorded against the real estate and start but to look you, for something that says the LURA, indenture, restrictive use, something like that. But if you do, do that, go ahead. I was gonna, I'll say real quickly that if you, if you get tenants coming into your unit on a LIHTC unit and they don't have the lease addendum and it's not attached to a lease, you should let us know. Or tenants lose things. Like there is people it. who like, I mean, I have, you know what I mean? Like was it issued to them? It could be some indication, but you should ask them and they should have it or the property manager should be able to produce it for you. And if, um, you know, you can, you can look it up on your own. Uh, you don't really need to get a title company to do it. Although, um, you know, People and, lose and, things and these days it's, it's almost as it's easy as getting a docket. I mean, uh, most, uh, most land records, they're county based and they're, uh, you know, you can actually, you can search on the address and find it. it, it I mean, it takes a little bit of um, real estate knowledge to, to really understand it, but, um, and to understand all the things that are recorded against the, the land, um, you know, the mortgage and the, um, uh, all the soft mortgages and that kind of thing, but you can you can find you can usually find an indenture pretty easily um, on you know a lot of the uh, the, the county uh, uh, I guess it's the the um, the land the quarter records. yeah the land the quarter record. of deeds yeah so um, okay so um, uh, QAP do we, so we we can talk about the QAP and advocacy Mark because this is your this is your time your non cookie time. Okay. Um, so in terms of uh, advocacy, one of the things that uh, part of the LIHTC process that's uh, subject to a lot of advocacy or could be is the QAP. And, you know, we talked earlier about um, the provisions that the uh, allocating agency or in Pennsylvania, PHFA, um, put into the QAP uh, and it may impact the type of developments that get done, the location, the type of ownership. So as an example, in Pennsylvania, 25% uh, of all the credits have to go to nonprofit developers. Um, there are set asides for developments that uh, target vulnerable populations so if you're developing housing for a vulnerable population, what's called supportive housing, um, Pennsylvania um, provides a priority to developers who do that. 
Uh, the QAP has to uh, contain provisions relating to noncompliance that we just talked about. So it's, the QAP is a point of entry for advocacy. And uh, it's developed basically on an annual basis. Uh, it's made available to the public and PHFA is gonna be doing, sending out in, at the end, well, in the middle of October, their changes to the QAP, which people can then respond. And you could say more units should go to very low income people. Uh, people shouldn't lose their house due to um, um, COVID-19. Well, whatever. Um, um, people, if there's redevelopment, you shouldn't be relocated without having the right to come back. There's any number of uh, units that, units, there's any number of issues that could be in a QAP. Uh, the three preferences that you see at the bottom are for the lowest income for the longest period of time and in qualified census tracts contributing to a concerted community revitalization plan. So um, if you have any clients who are interested in this or you're interested in participating in the QAP process, again, let us know. Uh, PHFA is somewhat responsive to these type of issues and uh, it's worth spending some time. I know a number of legal services programs in other parts of the country have gotten involved in areas of opportunity, uh, trying to direct credits to areas where there are high opportunity areas, where there's good school districts and there are um, uh, lots of job opportunities. And I think, you know, Ohio is a good example of that where they did a lot of advocacy and really changed the way the LIHTC was allocated. Um, just as a, an aside that whatever you provide a priority for is gonna take away from something else. So no matter how good the use that you're talking about, whether it's domestic violence victims or seniors who are in need of supportive housing, given that there's a limited number of credits, it just means something else is not going to get credits. And if you're allocating um, credits, uh, you know that. Uh, in Pennsylvania, there's a uh, restriction on displacement and the people who are currently in properties are to the greatest extent possible, feasible, supposed to get first crack at the redeveloped units. I'm not sure it always happens and that sometimes people get lost when they're, they've been temporarily relocated. But again, it's another issue which um, if you see happening, we'd be very interested in helping with. So, I think the, the, the key issue that I want to get across is that while LICAC is a provision of the tax code, and you know, Dean and I argue about this and all the time, it's, it's a program, it's a provision, <clears throat> it's administered by PHFA in Pennsylvania. P, the P, PHFA has 14 board members. They're appointed by the governor, the legislature, and their ex officio. And um, if you want to be involved in this area, it's important to develop relationships with both the PHFA staff and the PHFA board members when you can do that. 
right? Um, I'm on the PHFA board. Um, I've been on it for a long time. So uh, I'm the vice chair of the board and um, owners and developers want to, as Dina said earlier, keep in a good relationship with the agency. So when issues come up for your clients and you understand what the law is and you understand what the regulations are, one of the first things I would say, and I say this all the time in response to the National Housing Law Projects listserv, is um, if you think your client is being not treated fairly, um, first I would say is call the owner, call the manager, and then call PHFA, right? Holly Glauser is the person at PHFA who is in charge of the tax credit program. And I can see her with a gun ready to shoot me while I'm saying this. Um, but if you can convince PHFA that you're right, you're not gonna have to go to court. They will call the owner or the manager up and tell them to stop doing what they're doing. And that's gonna be way more effective than you spending your time in front of a district justice who may or may not understand what's going on. The second thing to again is if you know a board member, right, of PHFA, and I'm discounting myself, right, but if you know another board member of PHFA, they could also help, and they could help by, number one, calling the owner and manager. Because as Dina said earlier, the people who own and manage these developments do this over and over again. They want to get additional allocations of credits. If, and while the process for allocating credits is um, somewhat objective, it's also somewhat subjective. And having the support of your local elected official does factor into developers getting credits. So if your state senator is willing to call either PHFA or the owner and say, There's, I have a constituent who has a problem and I really need you to help them solve it. That could be way, way more effective than anything you're gonna do in court. That could be one phone call and you'll get your client, um, hopefully get them what you want. And I can't tell you how many times I've given this advice to people throughout the country. And I get these emails and phone calls back a month later, two months later saying, you know, that really worked. We did call whoever it was. So people who have influence in this process are your congressman, your uh, US congressman, your US senator, uh, your local state rep, your local um, state senator, all of whom the owners want to maintain a good relationship with. So even if it's something's discretionary, right? Like it's like, can you help my client move from a 60% unit to a 30% unit? Well, you don't have any right 
to get your client to move from a 60% unit to a 30% unit. But the owner may look for a way of doing that just to keep either PHFA or the elected official um, happy. And, I, you know, again, uh, um, I would say that this is very, very similar to uh, I'm Jewish, right? And um, what I would say to people is if you read the Bible, you're not going to learn really how Judaism is practiced, right? It's really what your rabbi or your local community. And you can read all the uh, federal regulations and you can read the QAPs, but on a daily basis, what's going to have the most impact on the QAP, on how you represent your clients, is knowing the pressure points of the housing finance agency, knowing the pressure points of the owners, and advocating with those pressure points. And again, I think you could go to the next slide, but, um, and we only have five minutes left, but the, these owners and developers want to do this over and over and over again. And they want to get additional allocations of credits and they want to maintain compliance. And the way they do that is stay in good stead with all the people that we've mentioned, particularly the staff and board of the allocating agency. So you're not going to find that in any textbook anywhere. You're not going to find that anywhere in a IRS guideline, but that is how this stuff works and how you could really do a great job of representing your clients. So I understand there's only five minutes left and I'm going to shut up again, but just think outside the box. And if we could help you do that, we're more than willing to do it. Dina, did I finish in time? You're muted. I said, I told um, our CFO that I would put a dollar in the kitty every, for every time I spoke when I was on mute. So like last month was 15 bucks. So there goes the dollar. But um, we went, Mark did finish in time. Do we, like, do anybody have any questions? Do they, like, it's, I mean, this is kind of odd. You know, it's, a, it's not like traditional legal aid work. We, we know that. And we, you know, our, our real like goal is to be able to help translate this stuff into something that you guys can use to advocate for tenants. Like we are in such a hard space for tenants right now. We just want tenants to be in the best position they can be and that you as advocates are in the best position to represent the people who so desperately need affordable housing. Um, so any part of this, if you have a question or anything that's remotely, you know, connected, we'd be happy to. Yeah. But I think the main, the main thing that we wanted to get across is we're here uh, and we're here to try and help you guys. Uh, we understand that what we do generally is more on the development side than the operational side, but we do understand the operational side and uh, want to be a resource. I uh, want to be able to help you represent your clients. This is Kelly. Um, while we wait to see if anyone's going to type any questions in the chat box, I'm going to go ahead and launch the second of the CLE poll question boxes. Please respond to that. Um, for CLE credit, attorneys on the webinar. 
And again, if anybody has any questions or comments, please type them in the chat box now. And if, Sorry, and if, you, if you don't have any questions, I mean, we really want to thank you for sitting through this. I mean, the thought <laughs> of, I, I mean, I don't mean that disrespectfully to Kim and to Dina, but the thought of sitting through an hour and a half of basically uh, tax code stuff can't be a joy to everybody, um, but it does have significant impact. There are two times more LIHTC units throughout the country than there are public housing units. So it just gives you a sense of how uh, extensive the number of LIHTC units are. So now I'm gonna do a dramatic reading from the uh, section 42 of the tax credit code. So if you guys wanna stay, <laughs> actually I think the timing of these polls are, is, is uh, somehow related to the time of day, the, the day that, of the, the week. The fact that people didn't leave <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> very clever, Kelly, to keep it up there, to make him have to sign in again at the very end. Um, <laughs> it, I, I, there's a whole bunch of other things on this too, like you know, we didn't talk about the student rule, we didn't talk about, well, I guess we didn't talk about We could do LIHTC 102 or 202 at don't some point me. in the future to get into some of the more details. Uh, and maybe we'll talk to Kelly about that after this is over. If people really want it. I mean, yeah. you know, you could also just say, um, and, and, and we could also, I think, you know, try to do a better job of making sure that there are materials that we have that we can access to share with you. Like a lot of the materials that we have that we use within the confines of our own office are sort of the technical aspects, but there are materials that we can help generate, I think, and we can send your way that have to do with the, you know, kind of the more advocacy side of this. And, we are actually working on developing some of our own. So hopefully well, that will be soon. Thank you guys. I'm gonna head out. Uh, a minute was, early? It was, well, it's 3.29, we have one minute. Um, <laughs> it was great doing this. It was great uh, seeing everybody's name and torturing you for an hour and a half. So, uh, and it's great to see David Gates's name who I haven't seen in a while and uh, Hi, David. <laughs> All right, enough. Bye, guys. Okay. Bye, Thank everybody. You. Thank you very much. Thank you to Plan Thank for giving you. us this opportunity. Thank you, Plan. Have a Thank nice you. weekend, everybody. Have a great weekend. Take care, everyone. Thank everybody. you, Kim. Thank you, Dina.